Hello and welcome to the third in the series of podcasts featuring two university registrars talking about higher education stuff. Dave Hall at the University of Leicester and Paul Greatrix at the University of Nottingham talked through a number of items of registrarial interest, including some of the more unusual aspects of the registrar role. This includes working with partners in challenging environments around the world, from Afghanistan to Ethiopia to Iraq, and then also to Malaysia and China. Some contrasts with Swedish higher education are also noted before things move on to the exceptionally challenging areas of portraits, diversity, and indeed gas pipelines. We do hope you enjoy it. Hello, we are here again with two registrars talking about higher education stuff. Um, my name is Paul Gratrix, I'm registrar at the University of Nottingham, and with me is Dave Hall, who's registrar and chief operating officer at the University of Leicester. And we're covering all things to do with um, higher education and things that affect the job of the registrar, and just strange things that happen in universities. So, one of the things that I'm occasionally asked is, uh, you know, what are the strange things, the unusual things about your job? So wh- what would you say are the weirdest things about your job, Dave? I um, got involved with a project helping um, staff in universities in Afghanistan. And uh, it entailed a flight out to Afghanistan and spending um, very, a short period um, in, in Kabul, working with uh, a team of uh, registrars and uh, I think there's a couple of vice-chancellors, with another colleague, a, um, a coach, and we were talking about issues around leadership and management. Um, it was, but it, what was challenging about it was that I couldn't... Um, see how they were going to get anything from me, given the scale of their challenges opposed to what we were, yeah, yeah. what we enjoy in the, in the UK. It was a number of years ago, the, um, Afghanistan was uh, coming out of a period of uh, conflict. Investment was being put into the universities, and they got a strategy to grow the universities in order both to uh, secure uh, economic development, to improve the education of women in particular, which had been devastated under the Taliban. Um, and they were calling on help from the international community and, and getting involved with that was both fascinating it was um, hairy going out yeah, when we landed that. it was uh, bulletproof vest on, armed guard uh, in a big armed, uh, armed compound working with the British it's an insurance platform. nightmare isn't it yeah, well I didn't worry about insurance I must admit but oh, uh, right. it was um, well we tried doing it following it up with Skype but I was talking to one of the, the VCs over Skype and, and on his lap uh, on his laptop, and it all went it all around him went black, and it, it, obviously he'd got a power cut, and it was completely routine. And the, his son appeared with a candle, and he could carry on. And he said until the battery in his laptop ran out, and I was thinking, how can what what do I have to offer <laughs> someone who is, yeah. with, with those challenges? And um, another colleague sent me a photograph because he wanted to talk about filing. Uh, and uh, and storage of, of data and I thought well you'll need an IT colleague and he said no I don't and he sent me a photograph of a room um, which was the size of a, a big garden shed yeah. and it was full from floor to ceiling with pa- bits of paper 
just stacked them on, in these t- t- teetering towers of paper. He said, I need help. And where do I start? Oh, my goodness. And, and you yeah. see, it was, there was those kind of basic challenges in the game. We, I spent time out in uh, Ethiopia. In, we were working with the university there in Gondar. And they, you know, it was about trying to work with them on, on management and leadership issues. And, and the same challenge. How yeah. can I offer you something when mm-hmm. you're, the problem with your uh, data infrastructure mm-hmm. is the hole in the wall in the, the IT building? Yeah. Um, which, which is what they were showing me was one yeah. of the, the challenges. And watching teams of people building their new administration block... Uh, by piling uh, on wooden scaffolding and men and women walking up the scaffolding and, uh, like a pyramid, like the way you see them building pyramids in order to construct the building. And you, th- you think you have nothing to offer. But yeah. they were very grateful. It was, it was a fascinating time. Yeah. Funny enough, they, the, what they struggled with was ending meetings. Oh, really? Well, because they were too polite? They, they were partly polite and, and no idea of chairing. So there would literally be a group of colleagues sitting around and and talking, and it was it was it was talking to them about how, how, uh, how you know bring some formality or structure yeah. to a meeting in order to. So you were able to it. offer offer something. You could give them a, a clear agenda, structure, and minuting schedule. Yeah, it wasn't what I was anticipating oh, in terms right. of the development <laughs> of our education system in Ethiopia. But but yes, yeah. at that level, they, they did find it. I genuinely can't match the um, uh, the, the the challenge of, of Afghanistan or the the, the uh, development uh, challenge in, in in Ethiopia. But um, certainly, uh, one of the exciting things when I arrived at Nottingham was the engagement with our our campuses in China and Malaysia. Which um, the China campus is only 15 years old, Malaysia is only now 20 years old. So at that time, 13 years ago, they were both still very very young. And there was a sense of a real kind of pioneering spirit in both institutions. And, um, you know, they were both effectively starting from scratch, albeit with infrastructure and support from, you know, colleagues, partners in, in Malaysia and China, but also from the UK. But it did feel like, a, you know, genuinely a kind of frontier mentality. And it, it was very, very exciting. And, um, and it still strikes me as absolutely amazing what both campuses have achieved in a very short period of time, despite all the challenges, despite operating in a different context, um, despite not having nearly as much uh, resource as the UK has. Um, and yet they are, you know, China is now, you know, kind of 8,000 students, um, you know, in only 15 years and is, you know, really growing its research portfolio. Malaysia is slightly smaller on the slower growth trajectory, but still done extraordinarily well. Got an amazing profile in Malaysia. And, you know, it's just remarkable, really. And it goes to show what can be achieved by colleagues, you know, in challenging circumstances uh, with the right support. So you were offering one kind of support. My colleagues in the UK were offering a different kind of support to Malaysia and China, but, you know, they both help and can, you know, help people do remarkable things, deliver great education and research, which is ultimately what, what we're there to do, really. So, yeah, nothing quite on your scale, though, uh, Dave. And, of course, we've both been involved in a programme, a long-running programme, with colleagues from Sweden, um, from Swedish universities. We've had a very different um, prospect where you're, you're kind of learning about how things operate in Sweden and, and thinking, well, on the one hand, very envious of, mm. Uh, mm. of uh, the way things are there. And, uh, you know, frankly, what just feels a much more sophisticated way of life, generally. I don't know what you feel about Well, I, the, what struck me, and we, in fact, we went, I went back uh, with... with 
the Vice Chancellor and the President of the Students' Union to visit colleagues at um, Lund because of their um, the, the way they have students engaged in yes. the governance and yeah. management of the institution, uh, and that's tied into the the, the national legislation mm. that, that students have to be part of it. So I wanted to see, well, what does it look like in practice? Yeah. If we think we've got students, you know, sitting on yeah. committees and participating in the in the governance process, is it is it really any different? And um, what was I thought was compelling were two things. One is that they were running all the halls of residence, so they they, they were running the the, the company. Um, but also when it came to staff student liaison committees, they got to a state where the departments and sta academic staff and departments, head of departments, were annoyed if they didn't have really good and engaging staff uh, student representatives, and 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 and, we're and as actually we're challenging the student union to give them better uh, students to challenge them. Yeah, yeah. And and that's that, that's where we need to get yeah. to. That that those. The students on the ground, who uh, who are the uh, group representatives, you like, who are experienced in the education day to day, have got uh, a forum in which they're listened to and their views are respected, and they can see what um, responses is made to the concerns yeah. that they've got. Oh, that's, uh, I mean, the other element of student representation is, of course, this direct engagement with the vice chancellor yeah. or, the, or equivalent, yeah. and they, they, they are required to meet with them. I think weekly, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Um, and formally, decisions have to be aired at that meeting before they can be ratified, don't they? Yeah. So the, the, the Vice-Chancellor has to get the agreement of the students on a week-by-week -week basis yeah. to any decisions the university is taking, which just seems, in our context, to be quite extraordinary. And it obviously hasn't done the Swedish higher education system any problems no, at all? No, no, none whatsoever. And of course the other distinct difference between, you know, particularly the you know, we, obviously in the UK we prize our autonomy, etc. And one of the things that universities nowadays prize very highly is their estate and their buildings and they see that as a, a major differentiator and a vehicle for attracting potential students um, but of course they, they see things very differently as well in, in Sweden in that you know the, the universities on the whole well it's not totally true but on the whole do not own the buildings that they're in they're owned by the state and there is a state company which which essentially provides the capital for new buildings and you basically turn up and give them a spec and they say oh all right then and we'll we'll build you a you know a new biology lab or, or, or a new administration block or and whatever it, it might be it, it sounds like the way to go in one respect providing it's properly resourced yeah yeah, because obviously if everyone's arguing over the, the two million quid in order just to get one building and there's not enough space, then you're in trouble. But I, I think yeah, I think the only limiting factor is the number of project managers they have to, to manage all their projects. And uh, But the, the other remarkable thing about the funding situation in Sweden is, as I understand it, again, it, a lot of it is centrally held, the, the, the research funding is, um, they are overflowing with unspent research funds which just seems extraordinary uh, to me, that you wouldn't be able to spend your research allocations from government. Well, it, it, it sounds, when we, obviously when we've talked to colleagues, it sounds like a generously funded sector, but you could say it's a sector which is funded in accordance with the, that, the Swedish government's commitment to higher education. Yeah, yeah. And, and the value that they, they see that yeah. it derives uh, for the for Swedish society. Yeah. Yeah, but certainly uh, visiting Swedish universities and meeting with Swedish colleagues, registrars and the like from those institutions is, I have to say, one of the 
I think one of the great privileges of uh, of the role that I've enjoyed in the past few I years. Said, I look I look forward to it when we're going to Sweden. It wasn't so exciting when you visited Newcastle. Newcastle, Newcastle is <laughs> lovely though, and we did hold it here in Nottingham as well. Oh, I don't that know was if you're thrilling as well. Yeah, it was, it was thrilling. no, but I I agree. Going to Sweden is a bit more exciting than uh, than UK destinations beginning with N. Um, I think they uh, hopefully they feel the same. Uh, I, yeah, I'm in sure. Reverse. In, in reverse, I'm sure. I'm sure they do. So, what other um, kind of weird and wonderful stuff uh, do you uh, have to deal with in your role? Because, I mean, one of the things it seems to me is, in general, if if someone doesn't know what to do with something, or it's a bit difficult, or a bit complicated, or a bit strange, it quite often ends up with the registrar, doesn't it? Yeah, this is the thing we were uh, talking about earlier. The uh, commissioning the portraits yes. for the great and the good who, who are moving on from the university having made a obviously a significant contribution to the, the life of the institution um, as a chancellor or as a, a vice-chancellor or a pro-chancellor um, and, and then there's the uh, how, how much are we going to spend do we spend more or less than what we spent before and will the person know whether we spent too much or too little um, and where are we going to hang it and uh, can we afford to have any more white men hanging on our walls? Well, that's it, isn't it? Because, um, I mean, part of the challenge with all the previous ones is that they are, on the whole, you know, ageing mm. white chaps. And, uh, and actually, if you put them all together, it gives a, a really quite unfortunate picture of a, a progressive 21st century university, doesn't it? We've, uh, um, we commissioned new portraits, and so we looked back through the history of the institution, and... Um, one of our academics did some research into the uh, actually a number of senior female academic colleagues who had genuinely been unrecognised yeah. um, for the transformation that they'd uh, made to the institution, developing new disciplines and, and what have you. So we commissioned portraits of of them, and also um, we're just working on now on the the university's first group of students were all women. Yeah. And uh, the first student union president, Nellie Bonza, we've got a portrait of, of her going up as well. So these are people who've right at the very beginning of the university. Yeah. So, uh, forgive me, are they still alive or are they... they no, they, no they've passed on, they? have passed on. So it, I'm slightly it, hazy it, as to the dates at the university. Uh, left, it was founded, we're just coming up to our centenary. Oh, are well, we? Right, good, right, okay. Sorry, 1921, sorry. so... Uh, uh, in fact, the first graduate from the university, the, the university when it got... Um, a charter status in 1957 was a woman as well, right? And she only she only recently passed away, right? So you're commissioning portraits of these people essentially to hang with the other ones to give a bit of balance. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and to actually give a, a a a better and more accurate representation of the contribution that a wide range of colleagues have made to the. Uh, to the institution over its last hundred years. Yeah, no, I, I, th I think that's right. I mean, one of the things that, that we've done, and I know other universities have done this as well, is, I mean, we commissioned a series of photo portraits of um, current female staff who'd, or students or alumni um, who'd done significant things for the university recently um, in order that we could have a special exhibition of them, which, you know, was... Uh, Again, it was a way of essentially getting moving all of those those portraits of former chancellors and uh, chairs of council, etc., to a different place and having those much more prominent. And then um, and then we replaced those with pictures of international staff uh, to recognise the contribution that international staff make across the university to all parts of the institution at a time when you know there is you know significant pressure on um, 
uh, on international staff, uh, you know, particularly from government and Brexit. One of the strong pushbacks we've had, quite rightly, from the student body is the uh, the lack of diversity in, in the visual representation yeah. uh, around the campus. Yeah. Um, and that has led to some other portraits being commissioned, and, a, and there's a, a photo wall in the, in the students' union. Um, but we have we're a long way behind the curve in terms of having a staff body which is more representative yeah. of the student body. Yeah, I, and I, th- I think that is a real challenge for, for universities generally. But, um, I mean, it is slightly bizarre that we're, we're, we're trying to address these issues through the medium of portraits, which is a, you know, a pretty old-school way of looking at things, isn't it? I think it's part of a package of stuff. <laughs> definitely, it's, definitely part of package. it's not just it's about a, the portraits. The, the visual representation on the canvas is yeah. a lot of work now starting in terms of decolonialisation of the curriculum yeah. and understanding what that yeah. means. Yeah. And actually, if I, it has been the the most uh, I can say challenging, enlightening. I think, to be fair, personally, over the last uh, one or two years, working now with a, a black majority, a Bain majority a student union executive, uh, working very closely with them, getting an insight into what their experience really yeah. is, and can they. Uh, and where they can't relate to the materials and relate to the community. So it's uh, certainly from Leicester's perspective, where we're 52% uh, BAME students, it is a, a thing, uh, it, it is a key determinant of the kind of university yeah. we are. Yeah. And we have got to catch up with uh, that in terms of both the curriculum and, as, like I say, the representation of the imagery that we have around the campus. Yeah. No, I, I agree. And I think every university, one way or another, is grappling uh, with the similar things. But, um, I mean, I have to say, I, for one, will be, will be glad when we're able... You know, the photo portrait um, is, is, you know, much more common than yeah, the, uh, the traditional uh, yeah. uh, oil painting because they're so blooming expensive. And I know, you know, everyone wants to keep the Royal Society of Portrait Artists in business and it's good that we still have people who have these skills. But I really resent paying the amount of money that we do for these things. And you do, uh, well, certainly when I look at some of the ones that hang around our council chamber, two, two things. Why, why did they have to be so big? <laughs> uh, because some of them are massive. And uh, why are they so dull? Yeah. Um, it, it's very much a trend, um, I think. Some of our more recent ones, of our most two most recent vice-chancellors, are, are a bit more exciting than the, the norm. But some of our historical portraits are absolutely dreadful. There's, there's no other imagery in the, the portrait to tell you something about the person or the institution. Oh, well, I, except you know, there'll be little clues, right? There'll be a little book in the corner um, or a little pen. I mean, very hard in the ones You're going to lower You know, it's, it's like the old Dutch masters. You know, yeah. there, there are clues in all the surrounding things. Or they're just not very good. Yeah, um, well, that's I the think, other possible. Mm, yeah. um, uh, the the other possible thing. So portraits are one thing, and th- that is a, a weird thing. You end up in a position where um, you know you are meeting portrait artists, which is something I have to say, I never ever thought would happen to me in my lifetime. One of the other. Um, weird things I ended up getting involved in is we had a champion balloonist in the university, right, who uh, persuaded the uh, the University Alumni Association essentially to buy her a balloon, which was in the university livery and with the logo on it and everything. And she she would, took it all over the world to fly it in competitions. It was great uh, publicity. She sadly uh, died a few years ago, but was a, you know, a really prominent uh, balloonist. And of course, um, we were then left with the challenge of what to do with the with 
with the balloon and and of course I had no ballooning experience whatsoever and no desire to go up in a balloon um, I don't know how you feel about this um, but, and there are very few universities that actually have such a balloon and we couldn't get a balloon club uh, off the ground pardon the pun um, but uh, so you know but we there was a group of staff got very excited about it and kind of took it on essentially um, the challenge we got is the insurance is prohibitive um, and you know kind of storage and transport costs are a nightmare chasing a balloon all over the country is a difficult thing to do um, and of course the bloody logos changed <laughs> Um, so you're left in a slightly difficult position but never ever in my wildest dreams did I ever think I'd get into the intricacies of balloon insurance um, (laughs) I I have to say it is also something about the scope of the the role that can leave you in a meeting uh, or find you in a meeting with a colleague where you are being presented with a, a challenge of which you have no skills or experience to to deal with. I remember um, one particular issue was the um, we just finished the new library building and the uh, I don't know what kind of pipe it was I think it was a gas pipe coming out into the road to meet the mains and the two, one was of different size to the other so they'd met up and they were you know, different sizes and um, of course, it went, I don't know why I'd be brought into this discussion about... <laughs> Your expertise the, on gas coupling, the, yeah. the, the, the problem of the pipes. And, and I had simply said, well, why don't, don't we just take, you know, make, get a smaller one, one that tapers or something? Um, uh, and obviously I was showing extreme ignorance about, I don't know, volumes and pressure and all sorts of stuff it was into it. But I was thinking, well... It's nice to be asked, but I'm not sure I'm going to add much Beyond your level of uh, your level of competence. Um, are there any other um, you know strange and, and, and odd things that you uh, you experience in your role, Dave? Um, we spent um, what well, a fascinating element has been coming back to the international travel was yeah. we're working in Kurdistan, uh, in the northern Iraq region. Uh, this is before um, the rise of ISIS, because we were on the verge of setting up a university. Yeah. We were looking at opportunities to um, establish a, a campus out in, in the region, and I travelled out there several times. And that was, uh, it was fascinating to see a country, or sorry, a, a region, an autonomous region within Iraq, using um, higher education as a way of developing their civil society. Yeah. And in fact, yeah. calling on a, there was an academic, uh, Nottingham academic. Indeed. Who was the Minister Higher of Education who initiated yeah. a lot yeah. of that. And hence, get it. there was also a very pragmatic reason for um, uh, wanting and encouraging and paying for international involvement. And that was um, as a shield against further challenges from other parties in, in the region. Yeah. Undoubtedly. And that if you've got uh, uh, Western interests uh, in Kurdistan, it would strengthen their security. Yeah. And, um, and that, that was a fascinating time, and meeting uh, ministers and seeing how they, the political process worked. Um, we had a very uh, well-connected and networked colleague who, who you could get a minister on the phone and, and be discussing issues with them very quickly. Sadly, of course, with the rise of ISIS... Um, that the, the country had to be put on a different footing and coping with whatever it was, four million refugees that they... they so it, uh, is there anything left of what you did? Um, is, are there any, I mean, how is higher education in Kurdistan now? That it's, um, I think, I'd, I'd have to check this, I think they are 
re- returning to a situation where they can invest again in students. Right. So what they were doing was uh, they were putting millions into PhD studentships. Students were going uh, into international universities in, in, um, across the world, um, and they're not just bringing back a disciplinary expertise yeah. into the sector, but they were bringing back a knowledge of how to run... Um, a kind of democratically organised institution yeah, like a university. Yeah. How do you? It's not just about the uh, disciplinary knowledge, but it is as a a, a pillar within a dem- democratic yeah. society. And I mean, part of that process um, was about providing the, the the administrative infrastructure to enable universities to run uh, as well. And, I mean, one of the things I, I remember vaguely from the time was um, uh, David Willett's getting very excited about um, sharing statutes with uh, developing uh, countries as a university statutes and ordinances and regulations, whatever, as a vehicle for helping them to you know to to build the inf- administrative infrastructure they needed to to work as a university and. The, I think you, you had a kind of connection with that, didn't you? We, we um, David Willis was on a, a trip to, uh, I think it was Turkey, and um, he was going to go to Kurdistan as well. And I was on the, the visit, and he and I went to uh, Erbil, the capital, yeah. and visited the University of uh, Kurdistan, which was an, a recently established English-language-speaking university, which whose governance structure, whose legislation had been developed by some British, um, a British academic and a, and a, and a retired yeah. deputy registrar, funnily enough, <laughs> who we both know, who, who had done the work for them. And the, the vice-chancellor there, Sir Wan Baban, who went on to become yeah. a, a, a minister, he um, was tasked with setting up this first English-language-speaking university in Kurdistan. I think it's, a, it's not always been a, a happy story yeah. since. But certainly the, the aspiration was there and we helped them set up an English language teaching unit. Fantastic. And, you know, it just goes to show that all that dry work and dull processing of statutes and ordinance changes does actually pay off yeah. um, in the end in a, in a very productive way. Right, we will uh, stop there until the next time, but uh, we've covered a lot of international and, uh, and other ground there. But thank you very much, Dave, indeed. Until the next time. That's all then from University Registrars talking about stuff this time. There'll be plenty more along in due course, and if you can't wait, then please do check out the Registrarism blog on wonky.com, where you'll find lots of higher education comment and fun and games. Until the next time.